Matthew chapter 24, if you have your Bibles, please turn there this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 24, or sorry, verses 15 through 31. In verse 15, the Holy Scriptures read, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we ask again what we ask every week, but be our teacher through your spirit. Help my words to be your words, as you have revealed them in your perfect word. Help me not to go beyond it. Help me not to shy back from it either. So I ask that you would empower me to preach your word faithfully in a way that gives glory and honor to you, but also edifies your saints and myself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to facing difficult situations, one small detail can change absolutely everything. For example, imagine with me, put on your imagination hats for a second, imagine that you've been thrown out of a plane suddenly by somebody at 10,000 feet without warning and completely and totally against your will. Suddenly, there you are, you feel yourself hurtling towards the earth at over 100 miles per hour. You begin to feel the wind rush past you as you spin helplessly as you fall through the air. You attempt to scream, but the wind is rushing past you so fast that it snatches the words right from your mouth before you can even hear them yourself. And so with your stomach churning and the ground coming at you faster and faster, what would you think? What would you be feeling? How would you process the next 90 seconds of your life? And the answer is, 
Well, of course, it depends. Because, as we said, one small detail can drastically change a very terrifying and troublesome situation to not be quite so terrifying. And that one detail is what you are clinging on to. Because if you're clinging on to mental images of your family or hoping that the ground won't be quite so hard when you hit it, it's not going to help too much, is it? You're still going to be freaking out, and rightfully so. But what if the thing that you're clinging on to happens to be a cord? Something called a ripcord. Yes, you'll still be scared. But your fear will be greatly diminished as you pull the cord and the parachute deploys, leading to your fast fall turning into more of a slow glide as you find yourself floating through the sky down to the world beneath you. And why does your fear suddenly diminish in in light of this extra detail? Well, it's because one small detail can change absolutely everything. When it comes to fear... Just as the one detail of having a parachute and your hand on the ripcord changes everything in a scenario of being suddenly thrown from a plane, so too does one small detail change everything when it comes to facing the terrifying events of the end of the world. Because if you read the details found in Matthew chapter 24, combined with the details we find in other books of the Bible, like Daniel and the book of Revelation, One thing is abundantly clear is that fear is the proper response to these events. However, with this one added detail that we find in the scriptures, it makes that fear diminish so greatly and so so much so that it turns our great fear into a much smaller fear. And that one detail is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and it says this, Then comes the end of the world, we might say, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, it can often become quite easily easy to look around at the world, or even at the church, or even at myself, and get quite hopeless, to get quite fearful and to think like our enemy is winning the battle against God and his people. Do you ever feel that way? I'm sure you do. It can often become easy to think that Satan and his forces of evil are just too powerful, that no matter how much we strive and labor, it's not enough. But like the parachute, there is this one truth that changes everything, and that truth is this, and we just read about it. The ultimate outcome is secure. We will not face plant plant into the earth at 100 miles an hour and be destroyed. And so with this truth in mind, we need to remember that our enemy's plans, they're going to fail and that our victory is 100% assured in Christ Jesus. It's not 99%. It's not 99.9%. It's 100% guaranteed. But in the meantime, we still have a little bit of free falling to do, don't we? We do. Sometimes we can feel like there's not a whole lot of hope. But the truth is, as the scriptures tell us, we know that even Satan's bestest of plans are doomed to fail. And in Matthew 24, Jesus gives us a picture of how and why they are going to fail. And so let me ask you this. If we can see 
that Satan's strongest of plans, that his best of plans are doomed to fail, how worried should we be about his less than best of plans? The answer is we shouldn't. And in Matthew 24, Jesus shows us exactly how Satan's ultimate best of plans, end of the world strategy is doomed to fail. And by looking at what he is going to endeavor to do, where he throws all of his might, all of his power, all of his force into crushing God's people and destroying God, seeing that he will fail in this should give us great hope in the here and now, should it not? Ultimately, Satan will fail in three ways, and here they are. Our enemy will fail to overthrow God's position. Secondly, God's people. And third, God's power. The last week, this last week, as I was preparing to continue our study through Matthew 24, I was listening to a pastor's friend of a pastor's friend. So I have a pastor's friend who has a friend who's a pastor. And I was listening to him preach on Matthew 24 uh, as preparation for this passage. And he said something that absolutely warmed my heart. And what he said was what I've been thinking, but he had the guts to say it out loud. And what he said was that throughout their study of the book of Matthew, it was chapters 24 and 25 that he was looking forward to the least. He wasn't looking forward to it. Why? It's not because he doesn't like studying the end times. It's because studying these end time passages, it's really difficult. It's extremely difficult. See, with a lot of passages, there's, yeah, sure, you can find some people who are going to, you know, throw their, their voice into it, but usually it's pretty straightforward what the passages are saying. And while there is a tiny bit of debate sometimes how to interpret them overall, in the end, it's really not that difficult to figure out the nuts and bolts of what we're dealing with, especially when it comes to the epistles. But not so with eschatology. Eschatology is a whole different ballgame. Because not only are there so many more nuts and bolts that you have to sort through, there's all sorts of other contraptions and doohickeys that I don't even know what they are, right? It's complicated. It's like putting together some big thing and you don't even know where all the pieces go. You're like, what's that thing for? What do us guys do? We throw it to the side. We don't end up using it. But you can't do that with eschatology so much. Because if you get even one thing wrong, it's going to send you down a trajectory that will throw you entirely off. Let me give you an example of this. Look at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 24, if you have your Bibles. Matthew 24, verse 15, here's what it says. So when you see the abomination of desolation of spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So right there, we already have, you are supposed to understand this, right? Revelation says, blessed is he who understands the words of these found in this book. But here already in verse 15, which tells us, let the reader understand, we already have two really difficult things to understand. Extremely difficult things to understand. First off, see what it says at the first part of verse 15? So when you see, all right, so when is that? That, that's, a, that's a big conversation. We're going to distill it down to about 30 seconds today. And second off, who or what is this abomination of desolation that the prophet Daniel spoke of in the Old Testament? And why are they called the abomination of desolation? Like, what does that even mean? I'll just say, there's a reason that my brain hurts these past few weeks studying Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And that's no understatement. All right, so let's start with the first one. When, when 
is this event that Jesus is talking about going to take place or did take place? And who is it? Well, that's a very complicated answer. Very complicated answer. Because this phrase, abomination of desolation, like a kind of can figure out like the idea of what that says. It comes right from Daniel chapters 9, 11, and 12, which is commonly understood back in Daniel, after Daniel's time and, you know, before Jesus' time, it was commonly understood to be a prediction of a person named Antichus Epiphanes. Who was that? This is worth 500 points. Well, I'll just tell you, he was a Syrian king. He is actually the king of the north that Daniel speaks of throughout the book of Daniel. And this guy was the absolute worst. He was terrible. Why? Because in 167 BC, not only did he make it his mission to completely destroy the Jewish people, but he wanted to destroy the religion and mock Yahweh God with all of his might. He conquered Jerusalem. He banned Jewish sacrifices and worship. He slaughtered a pig, which is unclean to the Jewish people, in the Jewish temple He set up his own altar in there to mock Yahweh God, and this altar was for the Olympian god Zeus. He stuffed pork down the priest's throat. He banned Jewish circumcision. He forced them to worship other false gods, and he murdered the Jewish people in massive numbers. And so, yes, this religious abominator certainly qualifies as a desecrator of the Jewish temple, does it not? Of course it does. And that's why Daniel speaks of him in this way. And yet here we are, nearly 200 years later, and Jesus is warning his listeners to watch out for the abomination that will cause desolation. He says, be on the lookout for this. Watch for this. Be discerning about. Know these things. So evidently, that guy, uh, what was his name here? It was Antichus Epiphanes. He was just simply trying out for the job of the abomination of desolation. He was trying out for it. He was doing his best effort to get, to get the gig, but he didn't get it. Which means then that there's an even greater abominating desolator. Everybody tracking so far? There's an even greater abominating desolator who is to come. And that's who Jesus is warning his listeners about. Does that make sense so far? Okay. A few more pieces of this puzzle and we'll keep going. Now this brings us to the event of 70 AD. Well, what happened in 70 AD? Well, if you've been with us, you know that in 70 AD, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was completely destroyed. And Jesus warned them about that. He said, remember at the beginning of his teaching here, they were walking by the Jewish temple and his disciples were marveling at how great the temple grounds were. And Jesus is like, yeah, looks pretty nice, doesn't it, boys? I tell you this, not one stone will be left upon the other. That is how great this destruction is going to be when it comes, which was uh, a, a judgment of God upon the Jewish nation for their rejection of Messiah. And he tells them that it's going to be, this, all this is going to happen very soon. And for a Jewish person, this would have been, if anything, a marker of the end of the world. I mean, their temple system would be destroyed. They surely would have been thinking, well, when the temple goes, that, if that's not a sign of the end of the world, I don't know what is. Which is why the disciples then start asking Jesus about the end of the world. And we find this in three accounts. We find this in Matthew, Mark, and the Gospel of Luke. And in these three Gospels, they all kind of focus on different things a little bit, but we find Jesus answering three questions. And here they are. Question one, they ask, what is the sign of the temple's destruction? And only the Gospel of Luke talks about that. 
Okay, we'll talk about that, why that's important in a minute. But question two, they asked Jesus, what is the sign of your coming? And Mark, Matthew and Mark talk about that as well. And question three as well, which is what is the sign of the end of the age? So the questions that are recorded here are not all in every single gospel. And if you don't understand that Luke is the only one addressing question number one, you're really going to get yourself in a world of trouble extremely fast trying to make sense of Jesus's all of it discourse. Because if we don't get that, you know what's going to happen? You're very easily going to conclude that all of this stuff that Jesus is talking about was completely fulfilled in 70 AD. And including Christ coming to earth after the temple's destruction. And I'm not kidding. There's a whole group out there called preterism, okay? And there's various levels of preterism. But preterism believes that these prophecies that we find here were fulfilled entirely in 70 AD. Many will say that Nero was the Antichrist, the ultimate Antichrist, and Christ defeated him, and he did, phys- did physically come back for a time, and now here we are building the kingdom. But... This idea of preterism, as I'm going to explain here, I do not think fits best with all that Jesus is talking about in this passage. Okay? Now, just a quick reminder. Remember, what is this passage about? Is it about Israel or is it about the church? It's not about the church. It's not. Even pre-trib guys, a lot of time they'll take passages in here and they'll say, hey, look, ready? You know, nobody knows the day or hour. Be ready. Christ, come back in a second. It's not talking about that, even if that's true. That's not Jesus's point. He is entirely focusing on Daniel's 70th week, which is called Jacob's trouble. It's all about God, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, grafting Israel back into the vine. When were they grafted out? When they rejected Messiah and the kingdom's offer was postponed. Now we're in the church age. Right? And right now, the, the blessings of God and they have gone to the Gentiles, but not permanently. They are going to go back to the Jewish people. And this Daniel 70th week is about restoring God's people, the Israelite nation, to the promises that he gave them. Now, there's some overlap there. We're not going to explain all that again, but that's the basic idea here. All right? So now you've tasted just a tiny bit of the icing on the cake for what makes this passage so incredibly complex. And I really summarized a lot there. Like that's the 50,000 foot flyby because it's complicated. Now I'm not going to defend my entire position here on this. I don't have time for it, uh, but maybe we'll get a little bit into that in the, sun, in the fellowship and focus hour. But the point is I'm taking a literalist approach to this passage and a lot don't. They allegorize this. They spiritualize this to, if I'm going to make a straw man argument, just Jesus ruling and reigning in our hearts, okay? A little bit uncharitable, but it's kind of true, right? That's not how we're going to take this text. It's really wild some of the ways that some of the commentators allegorize this and make this into stuff where I'm like, I don't know how you got that, but it's creative. I don't think that's right. Now, the events that Jesus is describing here are literal events that are going to occur in the future, aside from what Luke mentions for a moment about the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in 70 AD. Is that clear? Okay. So then, who is this abominating desolator? Who is he? It's Antichrist. And not just a Antichrist, it is the Antichrist. Because there is an ultimate Antichrist who is coming, the man of lawlessness. And Paul talks about him in Thessalonians, and there's other passages that talk about who this man is. But who he is is the ultimate rebel who will try to lead the world to rebel against God and God's people. 
And you can read more about this man in the book of Revelation. But here's the point. All followers of God face antichrists, plural. There are many antichrists. So whether you lived in Daniel's day or you lived in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and there were antichrists then certainly, or you live in our day with many antichrists, we all face antichrists. And that's plural for a reason. Because yes, there is one ultimate and final antichrist who will be indwelt by Satan during Daniel's 70th week, who will try to destroy the people, who will try to crush anyone who follows Yahweh God, The truth is, though, there are many antichrists who have come. And John talks about this. Here's what he says in 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. There's always somebody who wants the job. Okay, Satan's always moving towards us, and God keeps restraining it. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, it talks about how one day God's going to pull the restraining element back. And there's a big debate about what that is even. But the point is, one day God's going to open the door and say, go for it. And then the final Antichrist will step on the scene. And so this is why John says, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Similarly, 1 John 4, 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, as Jesus also talks about in Matthew 24, have gone out into the world. Do we face false prophets today? In droves. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. What do all of these antichrists want? What makes them an antichrist? Well, it's because they are anti, they are against Christ. They do not want you to worship Christ. Why? Because who is Christ? He's God. What do they want instead? They want to be God. And there's a little problem with that because they aren't God, because there's only one God and the position is not up for grabs and it never will be. See, ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan, who is the ultimate evil behind all of these antichrists, he's desperately trying to take God's position for himself. He wants the worship that only should go to God. He doesn't want people to worship him. He wants people to worship himself. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it certainly feels like Satan is winning this cosmic battle. Quite often, I can feel that way. Sometimes it feels like we are actually free-falling at 100 miles an hour to the earth with no parachute whatsoever, whether it's satanic Grammy Awards or satanic Super Bowl halftime shows or God-hating politicians or a God-hating culture that seems to stand against all that God is and commands. Or just seeing all the false Christian teachers out there who claim to be serving God, but really, as the scriptures warn us of, they are serving Satan, who wants to be God. And so they are antichrist themselves. But as Jesus warns us, none of it will work. None of it will be successful. In fact, during the Great Tribulation, when the Antichrist is given power and authority by God, which we read about here in Matthew 24, uh, he is going to test the world with trials and tribulations with great force. But how does it end? It ends with Satan not overthrowing God's position and not being worshipped by all for all of eternity. 
It ends with Satan being bound and cast into the bottomless pit as Christ powerfully returns to rule and reign in his millennial kingdom. And that, church, is the ripcord we must cling to when it feels like we are in a free fall. If you think of the book of Thessalonians, this was a very young church. And does Paul say, hey, don't worry about eschatology. Don't worry about end times. You know, that's too complicated. Wait till you get to seminary. No, he says, you got to know these things. These, this is your blessed hope, Christ's return. Cling to that. It's the ripcord which will get you through the free fall we're in right now. And so in the meantime, we live in a world where Satan is still striving to overthrow God's position. But not only is he trying to overthrow God's position, he's trying to overthrow God's people, which leads us to our second point. Our enemy will fail to overthrow God's position, but secondly, his people. See, all throughout history, Satan has attacked God's people in cruel and barbaric ways, like a wolf among sheep. We saw this first in the Garden of Eden, where Satan led humanity into sin, which has caused all the problems we face today. We saw it again, where he led Cain to kill Abel. We saw it as he attacked the Israelites through their enemies over and over and over and led them away from Yahweh God, which brought misery and suffering and pain upon them. And we see it all throughout the church age, including today. The point is, Satan absolutely hates God's people and he wants nothing more than to destroy them because he wants to destroy God. See, if you can't get at the king, what do you do? You deface his image. And we are God's people made in his image. And so he is out to destroy us. And so the thing is, church, we must remember that we face a very serious and powerful real enemy. In Ephesians 6, 12, the apostle Paul says this about that. He says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Can you imagine what it would be like for a soldier who's at war, who begins setting up in his trench a little picnic, starts sunbathing, starts just relaxing. Is that going to go well for him? No. He gets out of the trench. Where are you going, buddy? I'm going for a walk. Are you serious? We're at war, man. Get back in the trench. The same concept is what Paul is a warning against here in Ephesians 6.12. We face a very real enemy. Don't let your guard down. Be vigilant. Be on alert. Last week, we paused our study in the book of Matthew, and we went back to Matthew chapter 7, and we looked at what Jesus has said there about not judging others. And here's the thing. We didn't say this then, but it definitely relates. When it comes to that, make no mistake. It's not that we just need to get better with our social interactions. That's not, that's not the problem. The ultimate problem is we face a spiritual threat who is endeavoring to destroy us and to weaken us and to pull us into sin, which divides us and harms the body of Christ here on earth. And yet, how quickly we forget this. How quickly we start to think we're just facing personality issues. No, we're not. We're facing not flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wicked, people who are spiritually wicked, you want to know something absolutely fascinating about this? If you read the book of Daniel, you'll learn about how Satan and his evil angels, they're in an ongoing, ongoing spiritual war, right? We're surrounded by spiritual warfare. We don't see much of it, right? But the point that we read of here in Daniel 
is he talks about this ongoing spiritual war over the souls of humanity, which seeks to overthrow God. And in the book of Daniel, he talks about how during Daniel's day, Satan had assigned a very powerful and evil angel, which is a demon, to Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And there's another one talked about there who's assigned to Greece. And why did he assign them there? To influence the people to oppose God and to oppose God's nation of Israel. And make no mistake, even as Christians, we are completely powerless against these forces. If we were in a, in a match, we wouldn't even get a punch in. We would be completely knocked out. It'd be like a toddler trying to fight Mike Tyson in his prime. It's not going to go well. But do you know who isn't powerless against them? And it's the God whom we serve. In Daniel chapters 9 and 10, it tells us about this powerful God and what he's done on our behalf. And what it tells us there, at least with the Israelite people, is it tells us of how God assigned the archangel Michael, who is quite powerful and holy, to defend Israel against the attacks from Satan's armies. That's what he does. He steps in to set up his own angelic forces to protect us. And as bad as things sometimes still went for Israel, can you imagine how bad it would have gone if God had not done that? There'd be no Israel. There'd be no Messiah. And there would be no salvation for any of us because if God was not opposing these principalities, these powers, the rulers of darkness of this world, we would be absolutely defeated. And so, church, we must remember that it is our God who defends us. And we wrestle not against each other but we wrestle with principalities, with spiritual forces in the heavenly places. What is their mission? To divide us, to discourage us, to trick us, to fool us into believing wrong theology, to weaken us and to ensnare us into sin. And so we have to remember, we face a very real enemy whose strategy is to destroy and overthrow God's people by any means necessary. And as we said on our own, we are totally powerless against such enemies. However, the Spirit of God who indwells us is not powerless against these enemies. And so with the Spirit of God in us, we can walk in the Spirit and do as Paul commands in Ephesians 6, which is to put on the whole armor of God so that we may stand against the devil who roams about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Yes, Satan may still cause us physical harm, including taking our physical lives. However, as Jesus promises us, not a single hair on our head will perish. Not a single one, because our outcome is secure. During the Great Tribulation, this seven-year period, Jacob's trouble, the 70th week, uh, Satan is going to unleash all that he has, and it shows us in the book of Revelation especially how bad it's going to get for anyone who follows Yahweh God. Which is why Jesus warns that when the Jewish people see the abomination of desolation, who is the Antichrist, when they see him set up shop in the temple and proclaim himself as God and demand all worship with the edge of the sword as the threat, he says, you better turn and run like Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah and not look back. That's how serious this is. He says, don't, don't even go grab your stuff. Just book it and go. Because that's how great the wrath of Satan will be at this time. It will be a time of great tribulation that the world has never seen. What else does he say? 
nor will see again. Which is another powerful argument, I think, for why all of this can't just be things that happened in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. For as bad as that was for the Jewish people, and it was really, really bad, it's going to be nothing at all compared to the hardship of the Great Tribulation when Satan indwells the Antichrist and unleashes his full power and force against God. During this time, we find that two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed, which makes even the Holocaust, which I believe is one-third of the Jewish people or a fourth, pale in comparison to how severe this wrath is. And that's not even counting all of the tribulation saints who the book of Revelation describes as a great multitude too great to even count. But the point is, this time period, during Daniel's 70th week, the great tribulation would be so bad that, as Jesus says here, if those days were not cut short, no human would be saved. However, for the sake of the elect, which are God's people, they are cut short, which is another one of the many acts of mercy and grace that God gives his people. Another reminder, we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but against principalities. And if not for God... who is fighting our battles for us, we would lose. Absolutely, we would lose. It's God who cuts these days short. And for a further account of this absolute mayhem and destruction, you'll have to read the book of Revelation on your own time. Jesus goes on to tell us that during this time, there's going to be many antichrists, many false Christs, right? And false prophets who will arise. And they're not just going to use powerful words of eloquent eloquent speech. What are they going to do? They're going to do magic. They're going to do signs and wonders. They're going to do miracles, which is another reason, church, why miracles on their own don't prove nothing. They don't. Think of Moses' interaction with Pharaoh. Did Did Pharaoh's magicians perform signs and wonders back? Absolutely they did. And yet, these signs and wonders will be so convincing that as verse 24 says, they will will lead many astray. If possible, even the elect. Now, that's not saying if their arguments are so powerful, it might be possible to lead them astray. It's saying, remember the context here is God is going to shut this down. He is going to come in and conquer and keep these days short. He's saying, if it were hypothetically possible, even the elect will be led astray into destruction. But that's not the point here. Still, though, Jesus warns in verse 23 and 26 not to believe them, no matter what. And this warning is for, again, not the church. It's for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel who will experience this 70th week, Jacob's trouble. He says, no matter what, do not believe them. Do not believe anyone who says, hey, Messiah's here. He's come. And as Jesus tells us and warns us, there's going to be a lot of people who are claiming to be Messiah. We have that today already. But in this tribulation time, it's going to be even more so. If someone says, look, here is the Christ, do not believe them. The truth is, as Jesus begins to describe in verse 27, when he comes, there will be absolutely no questions whatsoever if Messiah has come. It will be crystal clear for the entire world. They will see him come. And he will come with such power that, as he goes on to describe here, will literally shake the heavens. Which leads us to our third point. Our enemy will fail to overthrow God's position God's people, and finally, God's power. In verse 27, Jesus describes his coming saying this, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Think about this. You're sitting out late at night on your porch. All the lights are out, and there's a storm going on. 
do you need someone to tell you whether lightning just struck 10 feet in front of you or not? No, you don't. Because not only will the, the light, especially contrasted with the darkness that you're in, be just such a contrast, it's going to be completely obvious. And not only that, but the thunder is going to be so extremely loud that it's going to make you probably jump out of your chair, potentially through your roof, especially only 10 feet away. And that's what Jesus is saying it's going to be like when he returns. And so just as there'll be no question of whether or not he is the true Christ, uh, it's the same thing with lightning striking in front of us. It's obvious. And so too will it be obvious when the Son of Man returns. In verse 29, Jesus describes the events leading up to this. And what he describes here are nothing other than major cosmic disturbances. And these cosmic disturbances, are they just going to affect the nation of Israel and Judea? No, they're global, which is yet another reason why this, uh, we can't say all this happened in 70 AD. It didn't. We know it didn't. Now, the details of this worldwide event are described for us in the book of Revelation, but Jesus mentions them here as well. And what he says is the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars basically are going to be going absolutely nuts with meteors or meteorites. I don't, I forget the proper scientific term there the moment. But the point is, this is going to be an absolutely terrifying event when Jesus comes, not in meekness as he did 2,000 years ago in a manger, but as verse 30 says, he's going to come in power and in glory riding on the clouds. And this power, this miraculous um, exercise of his strength is going to make all the miraculous works that were done a few verses earlier here that he described that will be done by the false prophets and the Antichrist are going to be in comparison to what Christ does when he comes. It's going to make him look like a cheap parlor trick. It'll be no comparison whatsoever. It'll be so blatantly obvious who, Lord, who the Lord is, and it's not any of them. The same Logos that John describes, who spoke the universe into existence with the power of his voice, he shows up once again to powerfully save his people and destroy all those who oppose his rule and reign with, as Revelation 19 says, the power of his voice. He will speak, Revelation 19 says, and out will come a two-edged sword, which will cut down his enemies. And when this happens, right before it happens, verse 30 tells us that the sign of, they will see the sign of the Son of Man. Well, what is that? Uh, that's a big conversation. Uh, but the short version of the, probably the best three options are church history thought it was the sign of the cross. That was a big popular belief for a long time. Others believe it's the Shekinah glory of God that departed the Jewish temple in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10. Well, others believe it's just Christ himself. I shouldn't say just Christ himself. Others believe it is Christ himself. Either way, though, the response of the people on earth who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it will be the same response, and it will be a terrifying, mournful response, as verse 30 says. And why will they mourn? It's because their judgment is drawn near. It is so obvious who God is, and it's not them, and it's not Antichrist. And when he shows up powerfully, shaking the heavens, causing all sorts of insanely powerful signs and wonders, it will be so obvious that he is God and their judgment is coming. For as verse 28 says, just as the vultures gather near the corpse, so too will it be like when the Son of Man returns. For when Christ returns, he will slay all those who oppose him with the power of his voice. And we said Revelation 19 talks about this. 
The Old Testament talks about how their eyes will literally melt in their heads and they will be consumed by fire when Christ speaks. Which is why scripture warns saying it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. However, for the elect, they will be gathered from the four corners of the earth, where? To Jerusalem, to be with their Savior, where he will protect them and care for them. And when this happens, Satan will be totally powerless to overthrow God's position, God's people, and God's power. And why? The book of Colossians tells us, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, sinners, all of us, right? We were once this. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Because of Christ's victory on the cross, no matter what it is we face, we know that our enemy has been disarmed. Yeah, he can still harm us, but he cannot ultimately destroy us. His weapons have been removed. And so we can have a confident hope knowing that nothing will overcome God's people. And it's because, not because of how strong we are and that we overcome our enemies. No, it's because Christ overcame all of our enemies and put them to open shame as he disarmed them upon the cross. And so one day soon, he is coming back to completely finish the job before he sets up his eternal kingdom on earth. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. In there, the apostle Paul writes this. What shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a promise you can take to the bank. That's a promise you can cling to in the free fall of life when you feel like everything is completely falling apart. Church, we face a very real and a very powerful enemy who seeks to destroy us, to divide us, and to weaken us. And yes, as we've said, sometimes it feels like he is stronger. But the truth is, his head has been crushed, and his days are numbered. And they've been numbered because Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Ancient of Days, defeated him on the cross, and he is one day coming back soon to defeat him once and for all and to save his people. And because of this, we can have confident hope 
That's Satan's position. Satan's people and Satan's power are doomed to fail and to destruction. In Daniel chapter 7, he wrote of this Messiah, the Son of God, who is the Ancient of Days, he calls him. He says here in Daniel seven thirteen through 14, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. As we live in this fallen world, facing the world, the flesh, and the devil, and sometimes we feel overwhelmed, may we, in our overwhelming feelings, cling to Christ Jesus, who is our blessed hope, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text, quite the challenging text, but we thank you for it nonetheless. And we ask that you would illuminate our minds through your spirit as you promised to in Ephesians 1. Help us to understand these things. Help us to live by them. And help us to cling on to them, remembering that soon the free fall will be over. And very soon you will save us once and for all as you usher in your kingdom to rule and reign upon this earth. Help us to be ready for that day. Help us to be living for that day. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ. Help us to long for his appearing. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.